as thankful as I am for everyone who's up here in the front leading us and singing this morning uh, in this service, I was reminded how thankful I am for those of you who are around me in this room with attentive, active, engaged hearts who are responding to what we're singing and praying and reading in real time. I'm going to point two out. One, as we were just singing when we sang, the grave could air restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Someone clap back there. I don't, you don't have to raise your hand who it was, but your clap in that moment just was an exclamation point to me to say, yes, that is great news. And I was helped by your prayer this morning, Andy. I love that when, when we open it up and invite you to pray, how often you guys are just eager and ready. But I was thankful this morning. You prayed and, and helped us thank God for his wrath and his mercy. We, we're not selective in our praise. We don't just praise the attributes that are easiest for us to see the glory in, but we are thankful that God has, hates sin. Who of us wants a God who doesn't hate sin? Who of us wants a God who doesn't really love who he, whom he created in his image so much that uh, who, whoever would come against it to attack, he wouldn't do something for but it reminds us that, that even though we praise him for his wrath, God's preference is to give, show mercy. He would rather us choose to receive his mercy than to face his wrath. And that's what the gospel is all about. Uh, Tim Keller says, the gospel tells us both that we are more sinful than we ever imagined and yet in Christ more loved than we could ever hope. And he says, so the gospel then should humble and lift the believer at the same time. Isn't that true? This morning, that's what Jeff's been helping us do in our worship team, these songs, reminding us um, that we are both more sinful than we even imagined. We still don't get it, even this morning, how our sin grieves the Father. We sang that we are ruined sinners. Sin ruins us, and it ruins the world, and we are ruined in our sin, and, and we're hellbound, we sang. We deserve just, justice to be done to us and, and we're unclean and we ought to say, woe is me. That humbles us, doesn't it? But at the same time, at the very same moment this morning, we're reminded things like this, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It's never gonna come back around and get me again, my guilt. It's gone. Love enough to cover every sin in each thought each deed, each attitude. I'm thankful for that this morning. I hope you are too. If you're not, I hope by the end of this service that you are. Let me pray as we turn to Genesis. Lord, humble us this morning and lift us up. Help us to not hide our eyes from our sin and our mess and what's ugly and broken and needs redeeming and, and, and restoring and Lord, assure us this morning of the security that's found in Christ, the grace in which we stand this morning. We thank you for both. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to do a little bit of recap because not only are we in the middle of this larger story about Joseph, but last week, Eric Tusselman preached from Genesis 42 and 43, and it's really ended with a to be continued because 44 and 45 kind of make up one story arc. These four huge chapters are really one big uh, sort of story that climaxes here in chapter 44 and resolves in chapter 45. And so Eric had the task of sort of setting all the dominoes in place so that the this morning, I just get to tip them all over. So thanks to Eric for that. Um, 
But let's recap where we've been. So for 20 years or so, Joseph has been, a sla- uh, been sold into slavery in Egypt, first in Potiphar's house, a, an official of Pharaoh. He's been unjustly accused, although he was innocent, and thrown into prison where he languished for years, forgotten by one man who had promised to remember him to Pharaoh. But finally, in God's timing, he was brought from prison and God used him to reveal dreams, uh, meanings of dreams that Pharaoh had had. Um, so that they might plan for years of uh, plenty that were going to come on Egypt so that then they'd be ready for seven years of famine. And that's put Joseph in a place of power and authority at Pharaoh's right hand. And all of a sudden, in chapter 42, that famine drives his brothers down to Egypt for food and for help. And the dream that they'd hated Joseph for all those years ago suddenly happens and they don't even realize it's happening. At the beginning of 42, they show up and they're bowing themselves before Joseph because they don't recognize him as they come for food. And Joseph has recognized them, but before um, welcoming them and, and, and sort of moving on, he puts them through a series of tests. He wants to see, he needs to see have they changed? Are these the same wicked brothers who sold me and put me here or have they changed? And so he accuses them of being spies and they say, no, 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 we're honest men. (laughs) He says, well, we'll see about that. Puts them in prison for three days to think this over and then he comes and he graciously offers them a deal. Uh, Leave one brother behind, Simeon, and the rest of you go and bring Benjamin, the youngest son. I want to see him. I want to know that you're honest men and you bring him back to me. And so then he sends them all back and then Joseph secretly puts all their money back in their sacks that they had brought and paid for grain. So they go home with food and money. And not only is this, as Eric said, a kindness they're seeing from Joseph that that in the whole big picture is hopefully gonna lead them to repentance, but also what are they gonna do with this money that they found in their sacks when they come back? And they get back to Canaan and and they tell Jacob, we've gotta go back, we've gotta bring Benjamin. And Jacob says, no way. Joseph's already been taken from me. Now Simeon's gone because of you. There's no way I would die if I lost Benjamin. And so they wait. But then the famine continues and finally Judah can't escape it. They need food and he relents reluctantly and he allows on Judah's promise that Judah will will pledge himself as a security. I will get Benjamin home. My life counts, depends on it, he says to Judah. And Judah relinquishes Benjamin and they bring Benjamin back down to Egypt along with a lot of gifts and double money to repay what they had in the first place and money for new grain. And they get there and they're immediately welcomed into Joseph's house for a feast. And they go in, if you remember, kind of fearful. They, they still think Joseph, this, this guy Joseph is up to something and he's gonna take advantage of them somehow and that he'd frame them with this money in the sacks. And so they show up but God is beginning to help them move from thinking God's against us. Remember when they find the money in their sack and they say, what, is God, uh, what has God done to us? And then they get here and the steward says, no, no, peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. They're beginning to maybe recognize both their wickedness and that God is up to something good in their life. And it closes with them eating and drinking in Joseph's presence and and, and a big celebration feast. So that's where we're at. Chapter 44 today, Joseph has one final exam for these brothers. One test. He is going to put them in a situation where they have the opportunity to repeat the sin of their past or 
to show that they've changed. It's a pass-fail test. Here's Joseph standing in this position. He could go either way. Now he has the power and the authority to drop the hammer on his brothers, doesn't he? He could just, he could just end them right here. He has the power of Pharaoh behind him, and they are guilty. But he also has power and authority and the desire, it seems, to forgive them and to rescue them and to bring them down to safety. That's what he's been working toward. And we too all have an ultimate pass-fail test with God. We all will face him one day. We sang about it this morning, about when Jesus returns and the clouds are rolled back as a scroll. One day we will stand before God and be judged and tested. And he has the authority and just cause. He has us dead to rights to either drop the hammer or rather, if we will turn, we can receive mercy from him. This is what he prefers that we would choose. And what he's doing even here in Genesis is all headed that way, ultimately toward him providing a way for us to escape judgment and be reconciled with him. And there's, there's hints of this, echoes of this even in our passage this morning. So let's look. Here's the question. What exactly needs to change in the brothers? This last couple of weeks, I, I want to give credit where it's due. Colin Smith was a pastor. I came across a sermon on chapter 44. And this question for me and the way he answered it helped me see this is what's going on here. This is really helpful. He said, what needed to change in the brothers was this. They needed to stop grieving their father and hating the dearly loved son. That's why Joseph is in Egypt here. And that's their, their great sins here in their family. They've put their father to grief callously for years and years because they hated his dearly loved son, Joseph. I mean, think back. In 37, when they sell him to slave traders and they concoct this lie and they, they pour goat's blood on his special coat and bring it to Jacob and they leave him to assume that his son who he loved was torn apart, devoured by a fierce animal. How horrible. And it says in chapter 37 that jo jo Jacob tore his garments, he put sackcloth on his loins, he mourned for his son many days and then this line is pretty terrible. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. All his sons, I mean, gathered around him to comfort him. He says he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I will go to the grave, to Sheol, to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. How hypocritical and hollow was their comfort. Coming to their dad, it'll be okay, dad. All the while, they know what they've done. They know that Joseph is still alive, most likely. Think about this. For 20 years, as Jacob refuses to be comforted, and they still live with them, how many moments do they see Jacob, their dad, with this heavy heart? Nothing can cheer him up. Still the pain of the loss of Joseph on his face. And with a word of confession, they could make that go away. They could say, Dad, Dad, he, he's not dead. And they don't. They just allow him to stay in his grief and his sadness for year after year because the cost of them confessing is too great. And the reason that they're willing to grieve their father like this is because of their hatred for his son, his dearly loved son, Joseph. That's why they did this, right? In chapter 37, verse 4, 
Jacob loved Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, his, his favorite wife, and it says uh, that they hated him in his special robe. And they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. And then when he has these dreams and God reveals something that one day Joseph is going to be exalted to a place above his brothers, that's it. It says they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. So hatred and grieving his fa their father. This is what Joseph's tests are to determine. Are they still like this? Or has something changed? Just pause for a minute. Isn't this exactly what happens when Jesus ultimately comes? Isn't Jesus ultimately treated the same way? God's people grieve the Father by hating the dearly loved Son. Jesus is baptized and God's voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what do God's people do? His leaders leading the charge, those who were supposed to be the good shepherds, the ones who should have been guiding the people toward waiting for Messiah, guiding their, their feet into being ready when the Christ comes and the first to receive him and submit to him. But what do they do? They're filled with jealousy as Jesus' ministry begins and they're filled with envy and they plot and conspire to kill him so that they don't lose their power and their position and their privilege and they get him out of the way. And this, this heart of hatred toward the son, the rescuer that, that God sends, grieves the father. In Luke 13, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he knows what's ahead of him, he says these words over the city, which I think express to us the grief of the Father over what's about to happen and why it's going to happen. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. They grieve the Father by hating the Son. And in Acts, when Stephen in chapter 7, the first martyr in the book of Acts, who's killed for the sake of Christ, as all of his accusers, his Jewish brothers, are around him with stones in their hand, ready to kill him, and he gives this speech, and he recounts a speech that basically says, you've always been this way. He starts with Joseph. He says, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And that was just the beginning and he goes on to recount, you did it with Moses and you did it with the prophets. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the, fathers did your, your, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You didn't just have two dreams from a 13-year-old boy. You had the law given at Sinai, followed by the Red Sea and the plagues and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. You had all of this, and yet you hated the son and put the father to grief in the way you treated him. We read this week in John 1 in our Take Up Your Sword reading, he came to those who were his own, and his own didn't receive him. And just as their fathers did, so have we. Isn't this ultimately what all of our sin, our fallenness boils down to? Is a heart attitude that hates the son and grieves the father. All of our sin. You know, 1 John 1, 5 says, if we say we have fellowship with God, but, but we walk in darkness, we're liars. The truth isn't in us. We don't practice the truth. 
with Joseph's brothers for 20 years. They literally do this. They live with their dad, trying to offer him comfort, saying they have fellowship with him, all the while keeping the, the wickedness and the lie hidden. It's just a sham. And the same is true. We, if we claim fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness and darkness resides in here, we're lying to ourselves and we're calling God a liar and the truth isn't in us. And ultimately, walking in darkness is hating the sun. We don't like to think of it in terms that harsh. No, we don't hate Jesus. We wouldn't ever hate God's son, but that's what our, son, our, our sin boils down to. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place, Philippians 2 said. The place of God's right hand. At Jesus' name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess him as Lord, as king, as master, as in charge. And yet we don't. Just like Joseph's brothers in their heart, when it was told that Joseph would be exalted over them and one day they'd bow before him, our hearts don't like to bow. When God exalts Jesus, our hearts say, no, 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 I'll be king. I will not bow. That's ultimately what our sin is saying. I won't bow. For some of you, that heart attitude, that sin, uh, grieving the father, hating the son, um, is, is very evident. It, it's it's high-handed. It, maybe it looks like just openly loving the world and loving what God hates and hating what God loves and openly rejecting God. But maybe for some of you in here, your hating of the son and your grieving of the father is harder to detect because it's under this nice cover of niceness. And you're an upstanding citizen and you're a helpful neighbor, but in your heart, there's still the pride that, that says, um, I don't need God, I'm fine. I just want to ignore God and the world he made as one whom he made in his image to know him and reflect him and bring him glory. That grieves the Father as much as any open, outright, fist-shaking rebellion and sin. Maybe it's under a veneer uh, uh, th that covers the heart that's self-righteous and you think, I'm good enough. Of course God would welcome me. I mean, I'm pretty good stuff. He, he must be pretty impressed with me. He's not. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Either way, I believe that God is at work in your life right now, even though you may not recognize it, in unseen ways to help you see your guilt, come to a point of the end of yourself where you will have the ability to, to look up and, and admit your need. And he has been showing you kindness and daily grace that should lead you to repentance. And I hope you see that this morning. So, get back to the story here. Chapter 44, the brothers, the final exam. Have they changed? And we see, yes, God brings about an incredible change in these brothers, especially Judah. So chapter 44, verses one through five, Joseph sets up this final test. We're not gonna be able to read all, uh, every word of the two chapters. We're gonna read kind of key pieces. I'm gonna summarize some of the story as we go along. But here at the beginning, let's read. Here's the test. He commands the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry. And then put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup my silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. So the steward does this and allows them to leave town and just get just far enough away and then they come after him and they stop him on the road and the steward says, why have you repaid evil for good? Which having read the whole story, if you have, you, you should think, wow, evil for good? 
That's what God's doing here. What they meant for evil, God is working out for good. So there's kind of an irony here. Why have you repaid the good that my master has shown you with evil and stealing his things? And, and they're gobsmacked. They have no idea what he's talking about. And he adds some pressure. He says, he sort of adds some sweat to their brow by saying, that cup's not just any cup. That's the cup my master uses to practice divination. He wants these brothers to think Joseph is a man who knows hidden things. A man you can't pull one over on. And you stole his cup? Well, they emphatically claim their innocence. And then Benjamin's found to be guilty. They're stunned. Look what they say. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing, which should make us laugh. Oh, really? Far be it from you? You'd never steal a cup. I mean, you'd sell your brother as a slave and lie about him to your dad, but you wouldn't steal a cup. But they're, they're, they say, no. And they point to the evidence. They said, the original money that we found in our sacks, we brought it back to you. We didn't have to do that. Why would we, why would we steal his cup? And they're so sure of their innocence that one of the brothers says, whichever one of us is found with it shall die, and the rest of us will be your servants. <laughs> the steward kind of backs him down a notch and says, well, uh, he who's found with it will be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. We're only going to punish the offender here, not all of you, the steward says. So they're eager to prove their innocence. It says quickly, they get down and they each lower their sack. They start with the oldest and they work right down the line. And so some suspense builds and Reuben opens his sack for the steward. You imagine, see, Simeon's in prison. So then Levi, right? Here, look, see? And they go right down. Open the sack, open the sack, open the sack. Here comes Benjamin's sack and they're just about ready and they open it up. Where'd that come from? And the final test has just been handed out right here in this moment. Here they are. They're fresh from that feast where Benjamin had gotten all those extra helpings. You wonder, has this stoked that fire of jealousy and envy and hatred? Joseph's gone now, but now Benjamin's getting that. What are they going to do when they're given the chance to cut and run and allow Benjamin to be left as a slave in Egypt? Are they going to relive the sin of their past? I mean, with Joseph, all they had to gain was getting rid of this annoying brother and making some money in in the whole deal. Here now, their lives are on the line. And they could save themselves here. But they passed the test. First, all the brothers collectively in verse 13 have this moment of, uh, of this kind of victory moment here. This is the moment of truth, verse 13. And then Judah steps up and, and, and in particular passes the test. But look at verse 13. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack and then they tore their clothes. Last time anyone was tearing their clothes was when Jacob found Uh, that Joseph was apparently dead and he tore his clothes and grieved. And here, all the brothers together, they tear their clothes and what do they do? Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Every one stood with Benjamin and they said, all right, let's go face the music together. They didn't bail on Benjamin. They they stood by him. Whatever's gonna come down, it's gonna come down on all of us, they say. And then Judah in particular steps up and he gives this impassioned speech to Joseph. They all get back to Joseph's house and all the brothers bow before Joseph, it says. And Judah, Judah, not Judas, that's different. He's not acting like Judas in this scene. Judah takes the lead and he stands up and he says, 
what should we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. And he starts by just saying, we're at your mercy. There's nothing we can do. And this guilt, I don't think he means God has found out the guilt of stealing the cup because they've all just emphatically said, we don't know where that came from. I think Judah is speaking of the guilt of their past sin. And they finally say, he's just saying to Joseph, we give up. I don't know what else to do. We obviously can't outrun God on this. God is bringing a reckoning for our sin and our guilt. He's calling us to account. And so he just offers that they all become Joseph's servants with Benjamin. Would you just take us all as servants? And Joseph tightens down the test one more click. And he says, one more time, only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go up in peace to your father. There's the last chance to pull the ripcord and, and, and beat it. But Judah knows well that going up to their father would not be in peace, doesn't he? That would, that would kill his dad. He knows it. And so he speaks up and his speech the most important person in his speech is not Judah, it's his father. 15 times in his speech, he says the word father. He talks about his father and how his father is felt and how his father is doing and how his father will feel if Benjamin is lost. And, and it, this is all about his father, his concern for his father and, and secondary for his, for his beloved son, Benjamin now. And he tells Joseph, he recounts the father's grief when Joseph was gone. And he recounts his great love for Benjamin, his youngest. And he recounts um, uh, how reluctant Jacob was when they went back and said, we need to bring Benjamin and how he put his foot down and he wouldn't let them go back until they had no other choice. And how even now he says, um, the thought of losing Benjamin would kill him. And then at verse 30, it comes to a climax. And listen, Judah says to Joseph, Here's what's going to happen if we go home and leave Benjamin with you. As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy's not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy's not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. We'll kill dad if we let that happen. Your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. He's talking about himself. Let me stay as a slave, as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That is a different Judah. I, I can't imagine, I can't bear, couldn't bear looking on his face to see my father endure that evil. And it's Joseph hearing these words and seeing this response that leads Joseph to finally, as chapter 45 begins, reveal himself. As he sees Judah say, I couldn't bear doing that to my dad and I could not leave Benjamin there to go through that. Joseph says, that's it, test, test passed. It says, chapter 45, verse one, Joseph couldn't control himself before all who stood by, he cried, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. This was the outcome Joseph wanted to happen. And when it, when it finally happens, it brings tears in Joseph and he says to his brothers, I'm Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him 
for they were dismayed at his presence. So here he is rejoicing and weeping and, and this great affection and, and gratitude. This is, where, this is the way this has gone. And their jaws are just open and they're afraid, understandably. So let's just pause before we get to the rest of, of, of what happens after this. Next, there's, there's pointers forward to Jesus here. He, echoes of Jesus, I think, in Judah and echoes of Jesus in Joseph here and ways that they actually magnify Jesus who comes later. I want us to think about this with jo Judah for a minute. Judah's actions anticipate and magnify Jesus who stepped forward as our substitute. In this moment, Judah's had some pretty ugly moments, right? Judah and Tamar in chapter 38, selling his brother, suggesting making money off it, chapter 37. But in this moment right here, Judah looks as much like the lion who's going to come from the tribe of Judah one day, who's going to crush the head of their enemy by putting himself in our place and, and taking the, the wrath for our sin. He's beginning to look a bit like Jesus, putting himself forward in the place of his brother Benjamin. But here's the thing. Judah really magnifies Jesus by contrast here in at least three ways. First of all, in this, let's remember, Judah's the guilty brother. Right? He's one of the guilty brothers. Maybe he's the guiltiest brother. And he's offering himself in the place of Benjamin, who's innocent. Benjamin didn't steal that cup. We all know this, that it was planted here as a test. And so this is right that Judah should do. He, he ought to do this, right? That's just for him to give himself up as the guilty one for the innocent. But Jesus, when he comes, offers himself up as the innocent one. In fact, Jesus is the dearly loved son who gives his life to, to, for all of those who will be his repentant brothers. All, his repent, all sinners who repent, he will receive us as brothers because he, the dearly loved son, took our place. He stepped in and endured God's wrath for us. And Judah offered to live his life out as a slave in Benjamin's place. Jesus offers his life his blood, his death, the sacrifice of himself as an innocent for us. He goes to the cross to bear our blame. And finally, in, in this scene, J Judah didn't end up having to go through with it, right? He offers this, but then Joseph says, that's enough. And Joseph absorbs the guilt of that. And he says, that's enough. I'm not going to hold this over you anymore. And he forgives. And he doesn't make Judah or the brothers have to face the music for what they've done, but offers them mercy and grace. But Jesus did have to go through with it. If our guilt was going to be absorbed and God who is just and who hates sin is going to forgive, someone must pay. And so Jesus absorbs this wrath and permanently frees us from the, re the requirement of our sin, which is death. And so we need to identify with Judah and his brothers here most in this, in this scene, in this story, because like them, we all stand guilty, dead to rights, we have all grieved the Father, and our hearts have all hated the Son. Again, in John 1, says they love the darkness because they hated the light. Or in John 3, I guess it says that. And we've all done this. And I want to ask, if your neck has been stiff toward God, even today, stiff, said, I don't need your help. I don't need you. I don't need to be rescued. This morning needs to be the day that changes. I don't want you to walk out the doors this morning just reaffirming to yourself, I'm okay. 
but like Judah and his brothers, to admit, I can't outrun God. I can't just plug my fingers in my ears and, and distract myself from what I know is true of my heart. Something's got to be done. And I want you to, this morning, recognize what Jesus has done for you and turn to him. The Bible says that you can receive mercy. You will receive mercy from Jesus if you humble yourself. He wants to lift you up. Judah's not the only person that looks a little bit like Jesus here, but Joseph now, in the way that he responds to his brother's uh, contrition and repentance and change and turning, also, I think, anticipates and magnifies Jesus in this way. Jesus, who ends up revealing himself as brother to repentant sinners, offering forgiveness and abundant provision and grace. That's what he does. Joseph makes this big reveal, and he's weeping with joy at what's about to happen, but it says the brothers are dismayed at his presence. They have their own Isaiah-like, woe is me moment. What's going to happen? We're, we're brothers of unclean lips. We've done some pretty awful stuff to him. But instead of retribution, Joseph offers them forgiveness and graciously providing for them, along with tears and affection and, and brotherly love. It's amazing. I want you to notice two phrases here in, in Joseph's speech. Look at verse 4 and verse 9 in chapter 45. Joseph says to his brothers, first, come near to me, please. Come near to me, please, he says. And then verse 9, he says, um, come down to me. Don't tarry. Don't, don't dawdle. Hurry. Come near to me and come down to me. We hear forgiveness and the desire to, to, to bless in these. Come near to me. He's saying, in other words, what you've done in the past is in the past now. You do not need to fear my wrath, my revenge, my, my retribution, no consequences anymore. You can come near to me. It's okay. Please, he says to his brothers, come near me. I welcome you as brothers. I know you threw that away by selling me off as a slave, treating me as a non-person, but he, he invites them, come near to me. I want you to, to be my brothers. And then in verses 9 through 12, he says, come down to me. Don't tarry. I want to bless you. He says, you will dwell in the land of Goshen. You will be near to me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds, all you have. And there I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. I don't want you to be poor and hungry, I want you to be rich and well-fed and protected so that, so that we can now grow from a family into a nation. God's made us promises that Joseph is confident of. And then as we keep reading, Pharaoh rolls out the red carpet on behalf of Joseph. And Joseph's offer, Pharaoh obliges and he offers them the fat of the land, it says. He provides them with transportation to go get all their family and bring them all back down, wagons and chariots. And donkeys, he tells them, he tells them, leave your stuff behind, pack light. We got everything you need and more here. So just come down and you'll be richly provided for. The best of Egypt is yours, Pharaoh says. And he gives them provisions for the journey and money and changes of clothes. And Benjamin gets more of those even, so it still continues. And food and grain and bread. And they bring it all back to jo Jacob with this news. Joseph is still alive. They come clean. And they're able to, rather than bring their father to the grave, they're able to say to their dad, Dad, 
relieve him of his 20 years of agony. Joseph's still alive. Not only that, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and he wants you to come and be with them. And at first, as you can imagine, he just doesn't believe it. But then he sees all the stuff and he says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is a great story. This is an amazing story. I want us to go back as we're closing this morning to verses 14 and 15 and this moment, this beautiful moment when Joseph falls on Benjamin's neck with tears and notice what it says, verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. He kissed all his brothers, not just Benjamin. Benjamin, I can understand, his long-lost little brother, brothers from the same mother, Rachel, but the rest of them embraced, kissed, a sign of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's one th- it would be one thing if Joseph here was just magnanimous, right? And hugged Benjamin and just was good, made good on his word and provided for them and didn't bring any consequences on them. I mean, that would have been pretty good to just take the high road and allow, spare their life and, and, and bring them all down here. But he kisses all his brothers. What's produced this? Well, I think his speech to his brothers, what he says to them as he explains, uh, sum- summarizes what's, what's going on in all this, it, it, it says this, it boils down to Joseph has come to see and accept that God in his goodness and his wisdom and his sovereignty has said it must be this way. It has to happen this way. Joseph, in hindsight now, has come to see that this Egypt path of being tied and bound and drugged down to Egypt and and serving in Potiphar's house and languishing in prison unfairly, unjustly, all of that, it had to happen that way. And he's begun to see the good that God is bringing out of it. He's seen the seven years of abundance and now he's seeing how it's provided and he's seen how God has sovereignly brought the brothers down and orchestrated all this moment. And in hindsight, Joseph, able to see all of this, I think is able from the heart to forgive. I wonder if Joseph would have been ready for that moment if they had come down like one year later. Probably not. But here in this moment, he's come to see and accept and make peace with this and from the heart forgive his brothers. Notice in his speech three times, starting in verse four, he says, God sent me. I'm your brother Joseph, he says, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine's been in the land these two years. There are yet five in which they will, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you, for you a remnant on earth, to keep you uh, alive or keep alive for you many survivors. And then he says it a third time. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's come to peace with it. And he offers forgiveness and mercy and he, and he calls them brothers. And here's the thing. He doesn't, Joseph doesn't just anticipate Jesus, but he magnifies Jesus here in this way. It's this. Unlike Joseph, Jesus knew from the beginning what must happen to save us. He knew about the Egypt path. He knew that he would have to be, take on flesh, be born of Mary to grow up 
to be tempted in every way as we are and yet no sin. He knew that in advance, the suffering he was gonna face. He knew in advance that he was gonna have to face one day the full wrath of God that we deserve. The sins of the world would be on his shoulders. He knew in advance all of it, every slap, every strike, every mocking word, every lie told about him. He knew all the the betrayal that would happen. He knew Judas and he knew the abandonment of his disciples that were ahead of him. He knew it all and he knew the silence of God that he was gonna experience at the cross where the father turns his face away and he goes to the grave like a despicable criminal and God doesn't intervene. Jesus knew all that in advance and he did it anyway. He set his face for Jerusalem. He wasn't drugged at that point reluctantly and in hindsight say, well, I guess that turned out well. I'll go with it. (laughs) This was the plan that he and the Father had had from eternity past and he carried it out. And so this is the gospel. This is the good news for you this morning. Jesus is the one whose presence ought to cause you dismay. And to see him revealed again one day as judge ought to make you tremble and yet he is the one who is eager to forgive you. He wants you to pass this test, to give up your sin, to turn from your sin, to turn from him open-handedly and receive what Jesus has bought for you. Jesus wants to fall on your neck with tears and embrace and kiss. We sing a hymn here at Grace often. We're gonna sing it as we close here. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Why? Because Jesus ready stands to save you. He wants this. Jesus is ready to save you. He's full of pity and love and power. And the chorus of the hymn gives you your next line. What should you say in response? I will rise and go to Jesus. He'll embrace me in his arms. I will rise and go to Jesus. Some some of you today have never done that. And this morning, you need to rise up and run to Jesus knowing he'll embrace you in his arms. You need to hear Jesus saying to you, like Joseph said to his brothers, Jesus saying, come near to me, please. Come near to me. I want to bring many sons to glory, and you too. And you need him to hear him saying, come down to me. Don't tarry. Don't wait. Don't go out of here for another week. Say, I don't know. I'm going to think about this. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Come now to him. And for those of you who have already done that and who are in Christ this morning, I want to assure you, Jesus' brotherly love and affection hasn't changed for you this past week. He has no regrets for having given his life for you, for calling you to himself, for forgiving your sin. He didn't sec- he's not second-guessing that decision. And he wants you to walk in the freedom of that. So before we close, I want us to, to pray quietly. Here's a few things maybe that you might want to talk to the Lord about. Maybe you just need to make your own woe is me confession to God this morning, right now, and not wait another day. God, I am a, a man or a woman of unclean lips and unclean thoughts and unclean heart, and I don't have a leg to stand on. I need to trust Jesus this morning. Maybe you need to ask God, God, how have I been hating you, hating the Son and grieving you? You talk to the Lord about 
maybe ways in your life that you've been justifying or ways that you've been walking in darkness while you, on the outside you've been claiming fellowship with him and God wants to bring those, these things into alignment and you're living to, to align with your confession this morning and you need to ask his help. Maybe you're not okay with the Egypt path God has you on right now. God's brought things into your life. God has brought you into things in this part of your life that you would rather not have. And that's putting it mildly. And you need to ask God, help me to fix my eyes on Jesus who understands the Egypt path, who walked the Egypt path, who's walking with me on the Egypt path. You need to cast these cares on him this morning and ask you to, him to, to, to lift you up. I even wonder if God's using these chapters and this, these stories of, of, of sin and forgiveness needing to be offered and forgiveness needing to be sought to be prompting you to either seek forgiveness, maybe even for sins way in your past that you've never owned and admitted and sought forgiveness for. Or maybe you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart. You know, Jesus had some strong things to say about harboring unforgiveness. And you need to bring that unforgiveness to God and say, God, soften my heart this morning. Help me to be able to forgive like you've forgiven me. So take a moment or two, pray, and then uh, Jeffrey's gonna come up and lead us in this one last hymn. Let's pray.